Come gather round the campfire and hear our ghostly tales of chilling terrors, darkest woes, and anything that goes bump in the night. So cuddle up with your best friend or dare it alone. The darkness is closing in and spirits are calling your name. This is Fireside Phantoms. for a really great scary story tonight i can't wait the wind is howling outside again again we've had the coldest spring what's pretty cool about today is that they had the indianapolis 500 which is perfect for my story because it takes place in indiana in fact in indianapolis oh wow cool so there you go that's our tie into um, haunted indiana haunted Haunted Indiana, haunted Indiana, haunted Indiana. Um, bum, bum, bum. But the story I'm doing is a pretty well-known story. And in fact, a lot of shows have covered it because it's really a good story. And um, it's really fascinating. It's a two-parter that I'm going to do all in this episode. But um, the first part is about what happened. And the second part is the paranormal tie-in, which I got pretty much all of my information from the uh, TV show Paranormal Witness, which is really a good show. And I recommend everyone to go see it. It's good. It's fun. A lot of fun to watch. I'm doing Fox Hollow Farms. So in 1993, a man named Mark Goodyear went to a gay nightclub in downtown Indianapolis, Indiana to party with some friends. After he got there, Mark noticed a man come into the bar. This man was tall, lanky, he had short brown hair, he was very plain to look at. But what caught Mark's eye wasn't his average looks. It was the way the man was paying rapt attention to a missing persons flyer stapled to the wall. The poster was of one of Mark's good friends, Roger Goodlett, who had been missing for months. The way the man gawked at the poster gave Mark the creeps, so he decided to approach him. After all, maybe this man knew something about what happened to his friend Roger. Did you know Roger? Mark asked the man. Roger that. (laughs) Startled, the man turned around and looked dumbfounded at Mark. Um, no, he said. He's been missing for a while. We are all really upset about it. Yes, it must be terrible to not know, said the man with very little emotion or sincerity. You don't happen to know what happened to him, do you? Mark said with a hopeful smile, trying the lawn shot. The man said nothing, just stared blankly at Mark. Finally, he slowly shook his head no. This response did not shake Mark's uneasy feeling. My name is Mark Goodyear, he said, holding out his hand. The man shook it. Brian Smart, he said in return. Can I buy you a drink, Brian? asked Mark. The man agreed, and the two men continued chatting and drinking for a bit. Their conversation turned away from Roger and to various other topics until the two decided it would be more appropriate to take their conversation somewhere more private. Though Mark knew this man was strange, he could not help but be lured in by him. Both fascinated and scared, he agreed to let Brian take him to Brian's employer's house, who was out of town. Brian explained he was watching the house while his boss was away. The two drove and drove and drove, leaving the bright lights of Indianapolis behind them and welcoming the rolling countrysides of rural Indiana. Finally, they approached a driveway. Though it was quite dark out, Mark could make out a sign next to the driveway that ended with the word farms. 
The driveway was long and curly and seemed to take forever until it finally swirled in front of a jaw-dropping, beautiful mansion. The two men got out of Brian's car and went inside. Brian told Mark the mansion had an indoor pool and the two of them should take a dip. Oh, nice. (laughs) He led Mark into the pool room and flipped on the lights. That's when Mark took a big step back. What the hell is this? Mark wanted to know. All around the deck of the pool were mannequins, all dressed and posed in various ways. (laughs) What? That is psycho. (laughs) I would be leaving immediately. I know. There's mannequins and they're all over the place. And um, he, he, it was creepy as fuck. Brian just sighed, oh yeah, those belong to my boss. He doesn't like to be alone and these <laughs> mannequins make him feel less lonely, I guess, he answered. Mark gave Brian an uneasy look and Brian just shrugged it off. <laughs> the two men jumped in the pool and started to enjoy their swim, horse playing and splashing around. Then, Brian asked Mark if he'd ever tried asphyxiation during sex. Mark said no. Wow, that conversation (laughs) (laughs) progressed very quickly. I think everyone knows that they're there to do more than just take a swim. I mean, I'm just hoping I've connected the dots that they're there to have a Well, I definitely know that now. Yes. Thanks, Holly. (laughs) Sorry, Carol. Carol, this is what happens. A guy goes out, meets another boy, and then they're going to go hook up. Okay. Kind of like college days. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) So Brian asks Mark if he ever tried asphyxiation during sex, and Mark says no. Brian tells him it's the most euphoric orgasm you would ever experience. Disclaimer here, we are not promoting asphyxiation. No, we are not suggesting you try this at home, kids. Totally dumb. Okay. Here, Brian said, moving up to Mark. He put Mark's hands around his throat. I want you to choke me out. What, said Mark? Just trust me, said Brian. Just choke me until I pass out. When I hit the water, I'll come to. And if I don't, just pull me up and slap me around until I do. Wow. Mark, and by the way, I took a lot of liberties making up dialogue. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> so this is. So this is me assuming what happened. I'm just pretending what oh, happened yeah. in the scene. But this did actually happen. This is good. This is a legitimate story. But I'm, I'm making writing. up the dialogue. I wanted to be a script writer for a long time. So there you go. There you go. So please don't people sue me for making shit up. This is totally my fictionalized account of the dialogue. Yeah. Though the the events of this did take place and they are factual. Okay, good. Glad I got that out. Mark was not sure he wanted to do this, but he also was open to trying new things. So he did what Brian instructed him to do, and he started to squeeze Brian's neck. Sure enough, Brian passed out, and when Mark let him go, Brian fell back into the water. Once underwater, he opened his eyes and resurfaced. That was amazing, Brian said. Then he smiled at Mark. Now you, he said. Mark was curious. He could see how much pleasure the experience gave to Brian. Well, okay, said Mark. I'm not sure why Mark thought that would be okay to try considering how he doesn't trust this person. But you know what? That was Mark's choice. So Mark decided to go ahead and give it a shot. Brian placed a swimming pool hose around Mark's neck and started to squeeze. As the pressure built around Mark's neck, he started to choke for air. But Brian would not let up. Mark started to realize that Brian had no intention of letting up. He continued to fight and squirm for air, but Brian held tightly to the hose around his neck. 
Mark finally decided his only chance was to play dead, so he pretended to slip into unconsciousness and into the water. Brian released the hose. A second after the hose was released, Mark opened his eyes and surfaced, gasping for air. Brian was shocked. Mark was pissed. What the fuck, man, he said. I nearly died. Brian just nervously laughed. <laughs> you didn't enjoy it then, he asked. Fuck you, man, said Mark. I should call the cops. Go ahead, said Brian. They will never believe you over me. What the hell is wrong with you, asked Mark. Why would you do that? Brian just looked at him and smiled a creepy smile. I like to watch your eyes bulge out of your head, your lips crack, and your skin turn white, oh, he said. God. And that's a true. He did tell him that. So, or something along that, those lines. Mark knew he was in the presence of a very bad man. He got out of the pool, dressed, and left the property. Mark then went to the Indianapolis Police Department to tell them what had happened. He truly believed that Brian Smart had killed his friend Roger and did it in a similar way in which he tried to kill Mark. The police were very interested in what Mark had to say to them because they had a string of missing gay men in the area, and they were getting very nervous that they had a serial killer on their hands. When Mark told them his story, it was very compelling, but unfortunately, they did not have enough to find Brian and bring him in for questioning. First of all, the name Brian Smart was an alias and therefore a dead end. Oh. Secondly, Mark could not exactly remember how to get back to the house. He knew it was in the country with a long, winding driveway and a sign that ended with the word farms by it. He knew that there was an indoor swimming pool. However, none of these details could help the police narrow down where Mark had been or who Brian Smart was. They thanked Mark for his time and continued on with their investigation, adding the new information to their case file. Flash forward to 1995, and Julie Baumeister was relaxing at her beautiful mansion out in the rural suburbs of Indianapolis, Indiana. She and her husband, Herb, had bought the mansion after experiencing a great deal of success opening a chain of secondhand stores named Save-A-Lot, kind of like a Salvation Army type thing, I okay. think. Okay. Um, the name of their property was Fox Hollow Farms, and oh. it sat on a circle at the end of a long and winding driveway. Julie had met Herb in college, and the two quickly bonded over shared political values and religious beliefs. They married and had three children. After opening up the Save-A-Lot stores, they made a tremendous profit and were able to buy the luxurious home out in the country. However, Julie's afternoon was interrupted when one of her children told her he had found a skull out in the <gasps> woods. What? You know, you've never heard this story? No. Okay. Yeah, it's a great one. It's crazy. Okay. So, oh, so this is the same property. Same, yeah, same property. Okay. Hmm. So Julie's son tells her, Mom, I found this skull out in the woods. Julie's son took her to the spot in which he found the skull, and sure enough, there were several bones laying in the spot. Julie didn't know what to think, so when Herb got home from work, she took him out to the spot. Oh, um, those are just my dad's anatomy bones, the ones I had in the garage. Um, I'll clean them up and get them out of here, Herb explained. It was then that Julie remembered that Herb's father had an anatomy skeleton that Herb had inherited when his father passed away. 
somehow it got out into the woods somehow maybe the kids drug it out their dog whatever hmm. so herb's explanation seemed to work out fine for julie as she had no reason to believe her husband would lie to her about this sure sure yeah so mark goodyear in the meantime uh was still getting calls from this brian smart guy the man that he had the strange encounter with at the pool that night huh brian never confessed to mark that he had killed anyone but he did say that he had some quote accidents and bad nights end quote Oh finally, God. yeah. Finally, after some time had gone by, like a couple of years, Mark once again sees Brian at a gay bar. He tells his buddy to follow Brian out into the parking lot and get his license plate number. His friend does this, and Mark gives the license plate number to the police. The police run the plate, and it comes back to a Herbert Richard Baumeister, whose address was out in rural Indiana. Um, the police find that Herb is the owner of the Save-A-Lot secondhand stores, so they arrive at one of the stores to speak with him. Herb tries to act cool, but the police can tell he is very nervous during their conversation. They tell Herb that he is under suspicion for the disappearance of several gay men in the area. He said, I'm not gay, and there's no reason to suspect me of such a crime. Because he's married, right? Right. Yeah. So they tell him he's been spotted at several gay nightclubs in the area. So he finally confesses to being there. Yeah, you know, but that's nothing. We used to hang out at gay clubs all the time. The best music and the best dancing. Oh, sure. Everyone would go. But he tells the cops, look, my wife does not know anything about this. Okay. Oh, sure. Because yeah. this is definitely something that I think um, she would, even if he was completely straight and not hooking up with any gay guys, mm -hmm. she would not think this was okay no that's not. the sense i have yeah. yeah definitely so the cops say can we search your property absolutely not says herb stay away from my wife and stay away from my house and with that he asked the police officers to leave they shrugged and leave the store looking at each other with a knowing sense that they are on the right track the police then decide to do exactly what Herb has asked them not to do. They head to the address associated with Herb's license, and lo and behold, it takes them way out into the countryside to a sign that says Fox Hollow Farms next to a lawn and winding driveway, which ends in a circular drive in front of a beautiful mansion. The cops get out and go to the door and proceed to shatter Julia Baumeister's world. We are investigating your husband for homosexual homicide, they tell her. She was dumbfounded and did not even know what homosexual homicide was. <laughs> they explained to her that Herb was suspected of killing gay men from Indianapolis. She could not believe what they were saying to her. They asked her if she would let them search the property. She told them that Herb had done no such thing, and if they wanted to search her property, they could come back with a search warrant. Uh -huh. However, the police did not have enough evidence to get a warrant, so their hands were tied. Except were they? They tried another approach. They decided to conduct a search from the air. They got an airplane and an infrared camera, and they flew over the property looking for heat sensors given off by dead bodies. Ooh, high tech. Yeah, but to no avail, they found nothing. The police did not give up on Herb Baumeister, however. In their research, they found out that Herb had spent time in a mental institution. He had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, and as a kid had gotten into trouble for creepy things like peeing on a teacher's desk <laughs> and being fascinated with dead animals. Oh, that's a for sure sign. Right. And as yeah. an adult, he did even stranger things like putting a piece of cake into a file cabinet so he could watch it deteriorate over time. Weirdo. What a weirdo. He must have great <clears throat> control over sweets. 
That cake would have been eaten so fast <laughs> right? if they were in my house. Oh, my God. I don't care. It could deteriorate my stomach. <laughs> That's, That's right. Where it can deteriorate. I'd go examine it on the way out on the flip side. <laughs> exactly. Eventually, after their save-a-lot, businesses started to buckle, and Herb's behavior became more and more erratic, Julie Baumeister filed for divorce. About this time, Julie confessed to her attorney that one of her sons had found a skull on the property. She told her attorney that Herb explained the skull was just part of an anatomy kit. Julie still had not decided to fess this up to the cops until one day when Herb lost it. He closed down one of the Save-A-Lot stores abruptly and in a fit of anger took one of her sons with him up to the lake. This was not a part of their custody agreement and Julie was in a panic that Herb was losing his shit. So she finally picked up the phone and contacted police. Come and search the property, she told them. She was desperate for some proof that Herb was guilty so that the police could go and get her son back. The police showed up and Julie, along with her attorney, took them back to where her son had found the bones. The police started searching the area that Julie led them and soon realized that they were standing in a graveyard of dead bodies. Oh, it's poltergeist all over again. Right? There were bones everywhere. Some had been charred and burned. Some were still freshly intact. In all, police recovered 5,500, that's 5,500 bone fragments from Fox Hollow Farms, and they were able to find and identify at least seven victims, including Roger Goodlett, the man from the missing persons flyer. They suspect her Baumeister had killed as many as 23 men. Once these bones were discovered, they sent an officer up to the lake to collect Herb's son, but for whatever reason, they did not take Herb into custody at that time. His son was returned to his mother, and not long after that, Herb drove up into Canada and shot himself in the head. He left a suicide note in which he blamed his failing businesses and marriage for the suicide. He ended the note with, quote, I'm going to eat a peanut butter sandwich and then go to sleep, end quote. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, he probably would be ending his life that way because he had no fear of pain, like, you know choking to death or anything oh, like that. <laughs> right. You would think he would have um, gone out with autoerotic asphyxiation of, of some kind, In a kind, state right? of euphoria. Yeah. But, you would think. Mm, nah, I guess not. So he never admitted to any of these murders. Hmm. In further investigation, the state of Ohio also had a long list of unsolved murders of gay men that had been strangled to death and left along the I-70 corridor. The same corridor that Herb used to drive from Indiana to Ohio when he had business there. The span of killings lasted from 1980 to 1991, just before he and Julie bought their home at Fox Hollow Farms. The I-70 Strangler had 12 victims, which, if it was her Baumeister, would put his body count somewhere in the 30s, but many people believe that the total is closer to 50 to 60 people. That is a huge body count. That's a big body count, yeah. For many years after the Baumeister tragedy, Fox Hollow Farm sat empty until 2006, in which a new family moved into the estate, and our story and the story of her Baumeister continues. Oh, no. This is where the paranormal stuff begins. Um, Okay. Okay. Robert Graves and his wife, Vicki, were excited when they went to view the property for the first time. The house was gorgeous and was priced way below what it should be. As they were touring the home, it started to dawn on Robert why the name Fox Hollow Farms 
sounded so familiar to him. Is this the home where Herb Baumeister lived? He asked the realtor. The realtor nodded and explained that that was why the price was so low. Robert pulled his wife Vicky aside. You know what happened in this house, he said. Vicky nodded with a cringed expression on her face. However, Vicky worked in the medical field and she was not really squeamish about death per se, but she did have her reservations about living in a house where people had been murdered. At first she was hesitant, but ultimately they both decided that they could accept the house's history as the property was truly perfect for their family, which consisted of them and their two sons. So they went ahead and they made a lowball offer on the property and it was accepted. And didn't you say his last name was Graves? Yeah, which is also weird. Yeah. Also creepy. <laughs> also creepy. They knew that their teenage boys would especially enjoy the indoor swimming pool, which also happened to be the site of many of the murders. Oh, God. Would you want to swim in a pool like that? I'd be like, no. no. I'm just going to like fill in the pool and turn it into like a rec room or something. Robert Graves worked at a car dealership with another man named Joe LeBlanc. Joe was looking for a place to live, so Robert offered Joe a place to stay at Fox Hollow Farms. The mansion had an empty apartment on the property, which would be perfect for Joe and his dog Fred. Robert told Joe that the property was indeed the infamous house that had belonged to Herb Baumeister, but that the house had been renovated since the murders and anything associated with the murders had been removed, so they shouldn't have any problems. Joe wasn't really worried about it, so he decided to move in. On Joe's first night in his new apartment, he had laid down to go to sleep and had a terrible dream that he was being chased through the woods by something he could not see. Joe just knew he needed to run and that his life depended on it. That was the urgency in his dream. The next thing he knew, he woke up, jumped out of his bed and started to run, but he slammed into the door and fell to the floor, smashing a lamp as he went. He cut himself with shards of glass from the lamp. Not a great first night at your new place. No. That's one hell of a dream, too, to get you up and running. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you don't, you don't have many nightmares like mm. that. No. So a few days later, Vicky gets home from work and she's talking to her husband, Robert or Rob, in the driveway and they're chatting away. She looks over and she's looking at the tree line of the forest and she sees a man standing there in a red shirt. He's got his back to her, and as she watches him, he starts walking towards the woods. And that's when she realized that she could not see this man's legs. Oh, whoa. So he goes into the woods, and he disappears altogether. And she says to Robert, I think that there's a man out in the woods. I just saw him. He was wearing a red shirt. Robert, of course, thinks it's probably some true crime junkie or groupie or something. So mm -hmm. he goes out to confront the stranger. However... And when he gets to the woods, he can't find anybody there. Joe, in the meantime, has been living at Fox Hollow Farms for about a week, when one night he is washing dishes in his apartment. It's somewhat late at night when he gets a knock on his door. His hands were still wet, so he needed to find a towel to dry them off before he answered the door. Just a minute, he called, but the knocks came again. I'll be there in a second, he said, but the knocks continue. Finally, he gets to the door and he opens it and there's nobody there. He steps outside and he looks down the stairs and all around the property and there is nobody there. Oh, no, 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 no. I <laughs> know. Uh, he starts to feel very uneasy and he gets that suspicious feeling like he's being watched. So he goes back into his apartment and he flips off the TV. And just as he does this, he sees a reflection in the TV screen of a man in a white shirt standing behind him. 
The man turns and walks down the hallway. His dog, Fred, starts to growl. And, of course, Joe goes to investigate, and he finds nothing. So they're starting to see some creepy shit on this property. Yeah. So scary. Yeah. A few weeks later, Joe takes Fred out for his nightly walk. And as they're walking down the driveway, they hear a noise. Joe does not like this. So he turns back to the apartment, telling Fred to follow him. But, of course, Fred, being a dog, wants to know what the noise is. So he takes off towards the woods. When Joe watches Fred run to the woods, he sees a man in a red shirt. The man walks into the woods and right before Joe's eyes, fades away. Joe couldn't believe it. The man just disappeared right in front of him. Hmm. Fred, of course, is in hot pursuit and runs into the woods after the man. Fuck me, says Joe. Okay. Good dog. Good dog, <laughs> I say. Bad dog. Okay, no, he did not say fuck me, but that's what I would have said had it been me. Yes. Joe knows he has to go into the woods after his dog. The same woods that he just saw a ghost disappear into. So Joe wanders off into the dark woods looking for Fred. That is exactly why I'm a cat person right there. No. No, you gotta have That's, a dog person no. to guard you. No, Holly. no, the cats will do an adequate job, and they don't do anything stupid like run towards a ghost. <laughs> they don't do stuff like that. So, Joe has a flashlight in his hand, and he's calling for Fred to come to him. He goes into the woods, and as the forest illuminates with the light of Joe's flashlight, the light beam hits something other than a tree. The man in the red shirt stands right before Joe, and he is dripping wet. Joe screams and runs out of the woods. And the next day, he tells Vicky and Robert what he saw. Vicky confirms to Joe that she, too, has seen the man in the red shirt go into the woods. A few nights later, Joe is awoken once again to a constant knocking at his door. Joe is starting to realize that there is something spooky and sinister happening at his new home. He knows that that knocking is not a person, but something else trying to get his attention. He starts calling out, who is it? What do you want? But there is no response, just more constant knocking. The whole door is shaking with hard, pounding knocks, as if it's about to blow off its hinges. So Joe finally opens the door, and of course, there's no one there. As Joe is standing there, he realizes that the door knocker is in the horizontal position. And as he watches, the knocker falls down, making a final knock. Once again, Joe looks all around the property and sees nothing and no one. He is once more overcome with an uneasy feeling. So he returns to his apartment. He locks the door and he tries desperately to coax Fred out from underneath the bed where he's hiding. Oh, so Fred came back. Yeah, Fred did come back. So Fred isn't having it, though, and he starts barking and growling as he can pick up on the fact that there's something very wrong happening in the apartment. Mm -hmm. That's when Joe hears the doorknob to his front door turning on its own back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, (gasps) making a creepy creaking sound. Suddenly, the whole door blows open shattering wood chips all over the apartment and banging into the wall. A man dressed in a white shirt, dripping wet and screaming, runs into Joe's apartment as Joe watches in terror. The man is breathing hard like he's running for his life from something. Like he's running from the pool. Right, right. The man turns and runs off, disappearing into the night. Joe does not know what to think. So he goes to Rob and Vicky, and they decide to look further into this herb bomb. Bom- I can't see his name. Baumeister. So, Baumeister. Thank you. 
So he goes to Rob and Vicky, and the, the, bow, the bow three west. of them decide to look further into the Herb Baumeister story. So they retrieve old news footage, and they start going through it to see what more they could learn about the case. And as they watch the footage, some photos of some of the victims appeared on the TV. That's when Joe sees him. Hey, that's him. That's the guy I saw in my apartment. That's when Joe, Rob, and Vicky realize that what they were seeing were the ghosts of the men that Herb Baumeister had murdered in that home. Isn't that crazy? The next day... So crazy. Creepy, creepy. The next day, Joe ventured back into the woods and found a large femur bone that no one had discovered during the police investigation. He found it uh, close to where the guy in the red shirt had been wandering around. So he showed it to Rob and Vicky. They concluded that maybe the red-shirted man was trying to get their attention so they would find his remains that were still in the woods. Oh, absolutely. That's what I would think. I would think so, too. Rob called the lead detective on the Baumeister case and invited him out to the farm. The detective told them about the creepy mannequins in the house and how Herb lured his victims there and intoxicated them with alcohol and drugs and then strangled them, usually in the pool. That would be enough for me to never, ever, ever swim in that motherfucking pool. But again, the graves are different people, and they really like the pool. Yeah. So one night, Joe's friend Jeremy comes over for a swim party with Joe and the grave's two sons. As they are swimming, Joe feels something grab his neck. He thought it was one of the other boys in the pool, so he turned around to confront them, but they were all at the other end of the pool. Suddenly, he is grabbed again and pulled under the water. Joe starts thrashing around, fighting for his life. Finally, he gets above the water so he can breathe. And Jeremy, his friend, just looks at him. Joe, are you okay? Joe's face is stricken in panic and his hands are at his throat. He makes his way to the poolside and he climbs out of the pool. He then turns and yells at the others to get out of the pool immediately. Confused, they looked at Joe like he's crazy, but they slowly get out of the pool. Joe believes that he was experiencing what Herb Baumeister's victims were going through at the end of their lives. This is awful. I know. This is just so awful. I know. I know. Makes me wonder if Joe isn't some kind of sensitive. But when you watch the Paranormal Witness episode, he seems very matter-of-fact, like the type of person that's like, yeah, I don't believe in ghosts. But but then when you see him and he's the target for a lot of this stuff, it makes me wonder if he's a sensitive and he can pick up on this stuff. Yeah, I've. It seems like if you are a sensitive, you do attract more paranormal activity. Yeah. To and you. plus, he's a male, and we yep. all know males were the intended victims in mm-hmm. disguise. So, one night, as Joe is sitting in his apartment working on his computer, he hears a scraping sound. He looks over to see that all of his kitchen knives have been pulled out of the knife mm-hmm. block and are laying in the sink. He then sees some knife marks on the wall of his kitchen, and he starts to wonder if one of the victims had lost his life in his apartment. So Joe turns everything off in his apartment, he flips open his phone, and he starts to record an EVP, an electronic voice phenomenon. That's usually, for those of you who don't know, that's if you think there's a ghost in your house and you're trying to get them to um, audibly communicate with you, you might record silence and see if you can pick up their voice talking Mm -hmm. to you. Joe continues to ask questions and walk around the apartment, recording the silence. All of a sudden, Fred erupts in barking. Again, another reason to be a cat person. I mean, if you're trying to record an EVP and the dog starts to bark, it really fucks things up. (laughs) (laughs) Just a soft meow is all that's really needed. No, no. Cats can meow very loud, as everyone heard in my episode. (laughs) I know. But when they're nice, non-demon cats. No, they're non-demon cats. Yeah. 
dead? Well, that's, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, Fred starts to bark. Well, this ends the EVP recording session. So Joe plays back the recording. He finds that he actually captured a sound on his recorder. When he plays the EVP back and listens to it over and over, he's finally able to discern what it says. When he asked who was there, the response was the married one. The married one. That confused Joe because he didn't know which of the victims had been married. So he went back through all of the information he had on the victims and all of them were single except for one, Herb Baumeister. He was the only married one. Which explains the knocking incessantly. Well, I think the knocking was the victim. Oh, was the victim yeah. in the white shirt? In the white shirt. So Herb yeah. was not wearing the white shirt. He's just there with the knives ready to kill. Exactly. And <gasps> pro- probably who attacked him in the pool. Oh, yeah. 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 Or so or, scary. Or it was one of the victims trying to show the, how they died. I don't know. But that is the haunting of Fox Hollow Farms. So, holy cow. So, so they're not living there anymore. Yeah, this I think family. they still are. I think what? they actually still are. They wrote a book are about they- it. Are they crazy? Yes. Um, pretty clearly, oh. they are crazy. But I, they did write a book about it, which I kind of thought about getting, and I should have gotten and read it because I'm sure it would have been a um, lot more detailed about what they were experiencing. And then I think to myself, but did they buy this house so they could make money off of the fact that it had been, you know, are they that's, making these stories up? I don't know. That's always the challenge because... You know, when somebody starts profiting off of the home that they lived in or is still because if you're super scared and all this is happening, you would want to get out of there. If, oh, you, if you've researched anything to know that this only will escalate. Right. And not get better. They seem like credible people. I mean, she works in the medical profession. He's a car salesman. The guy that he worked, the Joe guy is a car salesman. And they all seem like credible people. So maybe, who am I to say that it didn't happen? And obviously a place like that could very easily be filled with ghosts and trauma. I should get the book sometime though and read it and see what else. There's probably a lot more details in there. But Mm -hmm. the Herb Baumeister case, I remember hearing about that um, right about the time it was coming into the media. Because it was a big story in the media for a while. But he killed himself so there was no big trial or anything like that i think it would have been a lot more sensationalized and famous had he lived but because he suicided out of the situation it kind of just went away it was like Mm -hmm. a blip on the screen and went away so when i was researching this i'm like i remember that case i remember them finding all those dead men in his backyard and being on the news and everything i had no idea that there was a haunting story related to it so that was exciting for me to see that there's a paranormal aspect to that very dark and grisly story yeah and i didn't even know about it at all. Yeah. So it was yeah. very interesting to me. Yeah, Thank you, Holly. It's a pretty cool story. I wonder if they rent out their pool for pool parties. <laughs> it's called The Horrors of Fox Hollow Farm, Unraveling the History and Hauntings of a Serial Killer's Home by Richard Estep and Robert Graves. And I'm, I am think that they still do live there. I want to say that that is true because um, I don't think they moved out yet. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. Um, Sweet dreams. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. So he did what Brian instructed him to do. Fuck. I'm going to have a rough time. I can already tell. That's all right. Hold on a second. I uh, had to listen to your perfectly. Oh, no. uh, Yeah, yours was perfect. Now I have to struggle through mine.
<laughs> Sorry, Josh. This is going to be rough. Okay. He said he was not gay and there was no reason to to <laughs> Julie Babmeister. <clears throat> nope. I was going to say, was the divorce hmm. finalized yet? Because this um, could also help her win yeah. the house. Or, but would she you want the house mm, after no, that? No. Huh? Huh? Yeah. No. no. As the flames die down, do remain undaunted. Though all hitchhikers are ghosts and all dolls are definitely haunted. guys be sure to follow us on instagram our handle is at fireside phantoms if you have a spooky story you would like to share with us send it to firesidephantoms at gmail.com and you may hear it on a future episode